Hello everyone, good morning. Welcome to another episode of Med Cases. I am here today with another case. So let's get to it. All right, so today we have a patient C who is an eight-year-old boy brought by his mother with complaints that the child has painful fingers on and off for the past two years. She says that the child's fingers look swollen during such episodes. The mother also mentions that these painful fingers occur during the winter months or when there is a sudden change of temperature and is sometimes preceded by either fever or cough. And during these episodes, the child uh, was given analgesics and the pain is reduced. The last pain episode was four days ago and the pain has reduced since then. And now the child is not in pain. The mother also noticed that the child's eyes appear yellow since two to three days. There is no history of rash, there is no swelling of other joints, immunizations are up to date and no developmental delays. So this was the history. On examining the child, uh, we notice pallor and ectris. And the child says that there is a little bit of pain but manageable and the digits are slightly swollen. Abdominal examination shows splenomegaly and the rest of the systems are normal. Okay, so what investigations do we do? Let's look at it symptom by symptom. Complete blood count for pallor, peripheral smear for pallor and splenomegaly, LFT liver function tests for jaundice, ultrasound abdomen and pelvis since we have splenomegaly, and one more, a few more tests because let's look at it this way so there is a child with anemia and jaundice so a hemolytic anemia should be in our differentials and to prove this we need to look for haptoglobin ldh and reticulocyte count okay so we've done these tests so now let's look at the results cbc shows a low hemoglobin and the rest of the values are normal Peripheral smear shows a crescentic shaped red blood cells and hovel jolly bodies in the smear. Liver function tests show elevated total and indirect bilirubin, normal liver enzymes. Haptoglobin is decreased, LDH is increased, reticulocyte count is also increased. USG abdomen and pelvis shows uh, mild to moderate splenomegaly. Okay, so at this point, it pretty much looks like a sickle cell anemia, right? Like from the sickling, sickled uh, red blood cells in the peripheral smear and hollow jolly bodies. But um, we do need to prove it. So when we try to prove it, we need a confirmatory tests. So they are hemoglobin electrophoresis or mass spectroscopy or sickling tests which basically means you you prepare a blood slide or blood smear in anaerobic conditions and see if the cells sickle. Well, let's say in this case, it is sickling. So we have our confirmation saying this is sickle cell anemia. Okay, now I just want to break down uh, a few um, the investigation reports and why we see them. So as we discussed in our previous episode, if you see a hemolytic anemia, 
the free hemoglobin binds to haptoglobin so there is less free haptoglobin and hence haptoglobin is decreased since we have a lot of uh, hemolysis and rbcs are coming down uh, the body starts to produce more erythropoietin epo and this stimulates the bone marrow to produce more uh, erythrocytes or erythroblasts so to you know to recover the anemia uh, even immature rbcs kind of get into the blood system so we also see elevated reticulocytes that is the reason we notice that and because of hemolysis obviously we see increase in indirect bilirubin and normal liver enzymes because the liver is normal okay so since we've discussed that and got it out of our way we should know how to manage a case of sickle cell disease so first thing would be to avoid triggers so there are a few triggers which cause sickling of the cells causing all the symptoms of sickle cell anemia especially the ones are fever so if there's any infection it's a trigger to cause sickle cell anemia any abrupt changes in temperature like we saw in this case can also cause cause sickling of cells and hypoxia hypoxia is pretty important so if a person with hypoxia goes into high altitudes so if a person with sickle cell disease goes to high altitudes where there is low oxygen concentration it causes any it causes hypoxia causing sickling of cells causing all the symptoms of pain and everything else we saw okay now say we could not avoid triggers and the person does have pain so we have to manage the pain so uh, we give this i mean we, we give NSAIDs or morphine if there's severe pain for our pain management if it is a child i we just stick to um NSAIDs and oxycodone okay so we have our pain management next is anemia management well we can just say we can give blood transfusions right well yeah we can give blood transfusions but we only uh, keep it for cases such as very severe um, anemia okay so now that we have um, that also discussed what there are a few other um, drugs which are quite important to treat sickle cell anemia the first one is um, penicillin so uh, we have to give penicillin at least until the age of five years to avoid uh, super infections because the spleen is over functioning it is not able to do other functions we have to supplement with antibiotics and say there are there is a sepsis in a patient we have to give respective antibiotics now there is a wonder drug especially for sickle cell disease it's called hydroxyurea okay now how does this work hydroxyurea causes an increase in the fetal hemoglobin but why do we need more fetal hemoglobin okay so if you look at the pathophysio of why there is sickling of cells when there is deoxygenation the rbcs tend to sickle hpf has a higher affinity for oxygen so this delays or prevents it from sickling very easily or even if it does sickle not all of the oxygen is released so we don't have as much as sickling as we normally would and this would definitely help the patient 
So do we give hydroxyurea to all patients? No, not at all. So we only give for people with repeated episodes of um, sicklings causing a lot of symptoms, repeated hospitalizations due to that, and something called acute chest syndrome. I will come back to acute chest syndrome in a minute. Um, so let's just finish about um, hydroxyurea. Okay, so hydroxyurea also has some major side effects like bone marrow suppression or myelosuppression. But if you look at the risk-benefit ratio, it does wonders when it comes to sickle cell disease and hence we are still using it. Okay, so we talked about something called acute chest syndrome. What is it? So basically, acute chest syndrome is a painful and a temporary pulmonary dysfunction. This is caused due to sickling of cells in the lung or any bone marrow emboli moving towards the lung. How does this present to us? Chest pain, tachypnea, fever, cough, even arterial oxygen desaturation. Well, this does look a lot like pneumonia or a pulmonary emboli, sometimes even MI. So it is difficult to distinguish between them, especially in an acute setting because it's an emergency, but we can we, we still have to rule out a lot of it based on history. Okay, now we talked about hydroxyurea as a management. There are a few more management options we have. Exchange transfusion. This is extremely helpful if you're trying to prevent a stroke in any patient. The next management option is bone marrow transplant. This is highly effective, but only in children. It's not, studies have not shown to be that effective in adults. Currently, gene therapies have, are also being studied to, you know, help adult patients, child pediatric patients, and everybody. Again, since this is a genetic disease, as you know, the disease is caused by change in the genes, like replacement of one um, amino acid. That is the main problem here. I will talk about this amino acid in my next episode. If you don't know about the amino acid, read it up. Okay, uh, so since this is a genetic disease, screening and counseling is extremely important. It has to be one of your management steps. Okay, so this is about the case and how you investigate it and how you would manage it. But there are a few other points I would like to mention regarding sickle cell disease. One of the symptoms here is dactylitis, which is painful and swollen fingers. Why do we see this? Is because of sickling of the RBCs in the vessels in the fingers. It's also called a vaso-occlusion crisis. Okay, basically, a vaso-occlusion crisis can happen anywhere in the body. If it happens in the fingers or the toes, it's called hand-foot syndrome. These episodes are extremely painful and hence have to be managed with analgesics a pretty good, actually a really good hydration and removing all triggers. Now the spleen does a pretty good job at destroying all these sickle cells. And this is the reason we see jaundice and splenomegaly. This is also called splenic sequestration crisis. Now increased hemolysis can also cause pigmented gallstones, which we talked about in our previous episode. Hence cholecystectomy has to be performed if required. Okay, now we were talking about vaso-occlusion. If it happens in fingers, 
Now, what if it happens in this plane itself? This is actually quite common, uh, quite um, common, and it's called auto infarction of the spleen. It happens by the age of four years in people with sickle cell disease. The reason I am mentioning this is because the spleen, which is responsible for destroying all the bad um, cells in our blood, is not working anymore. So there is no protection against three main infections. These three infections are super important when the spleen is not functioning. One, they are pneumococcus, H influenza or hemophilus influenza, and meningococcus. Hence, if you see a patient, literally any patient with not proper functioning spleen, you need to vaccinate them for these uh, three infections. In some cases where we see repeated sequestration crisis and the patient is having severe jaundice repeatedly, having severe admissions, pain, and everything, uh, we can electively remove the spleen. Splenectomy can be done. And even for such patients, vaccinations have to be given. Okay, another important concept for vaso-occlusion is something called hyposthenuria. So what happens here is the sickle RBCs block the vasa recta in the inner medulla of the kidney. Now this causes the improper functioning of the loops of Henle and the collecting duct and the countercurrent mechanism. So this causes impairment in concentration of urine, which means the person is going to have he's going to have polyuria and nocturia. He's just gonna be peeing a lot. Or she. Another important thing about vaso occlusion is if it happens in the bones. See, if the blood vessels to the bones are blocked, it can cause avascular necrosis. And the common sites usually for avascular necrosis are humeral and femoral heads. And how do how would we manage here? Would be pain control as a first thing, and you avoid weight bearing on that side because the bone is undergoing necrosis obviously it's not going to be able to bear the weight and you want to prevent fractures if this measures fail like usually this is just temporary like like the occlusion episode if it still fails you're not able to control it it's happening over and over again you need to uh, do a surgery a surgical intervention to replace the joint or replace the bone okay so we learned about splenic sequestration crisis and vaso-occlusion. Now there is a similar term, similar sounding term called aplastic crisis. Do not confuse this with sequestration crisis because they are totally different. Okay, let's look at aplastic crisis. Aplasia means the blood cells are not being manufactured from the bone marrow. So in aplastic crisis, Obviously, it's a crisis, so we're going to see pancytopenia. So the important thing I want you to remember here is a lot of infections can be associated with aplastic crisis. I mean, aplastic crisis can lead to like can invite so many uh, diseases or infections. But the main one here I want you to remember is parvovirus infection, which can lead to aplastic crisis. Now. How is this different from splenic sequestration crisis? In splenic sequestration crisis, the spleen is destroying only the faulty red blood cells. So the WBCs and the platelets are normal. 
in aplastic crisis, it, none of the cells are being manufactured, so you will see pancytopenia. The second difference is in sequestration crisis, the spleen is overfunctioning, so you will see hypoplasia or splenomegaly. In aplastic crisis, there is nothing related to the spleen here, so there is no splenomegaly. Now, how do we treat if a, a patient is in aplastic crisis? Blood transfusions, of course, because you have no RBCs, no WBCs, no platelets. Okay, of note, I would also like to mention that in sickle cell disease, you also see other forms of hemoglobin. It's, uh, let's say, an evolutionary or the body's way of trying to fight the disease. And one of the most common ones is HPSC, S for sickle and C for cap. So it's, uh, SC is a common of those. All right, so that is it for this case. A relatively easy one for diagnosis, but it has like, a lot of factors to it. Before we end this episode, I have a small question for you all. So if you remember, uh, we tried to increase hemoglobin F, fetal hemoglobin, to prevent sickling or to prevent changing the shape or, of the um, RBCs, which in turn would result in decrease in adult form. So if you increase one form of hemoglobin, it would decrease the adult form of hemoglobin. Now, if you think about it, Thalassemia also has a defect in adult hemoglobin. So if we give hydroxyurea, why wouldn't that help thalassemia? Or why are we not using it that often? I will let you ponder over this for now, but I will give you the answer in my next episode. I hope you all enjoyed learning in this episode. I will catch you all in the next one with another case. Bye.